Well, good morning once again. It's good to be with you this morning in the house of our God and to sing his praises and to hear from his word. It's good for us to be together as the people of God. You know, in the fourth century, one of the most important councils in the history of the church met in the Italian city of Nicaea. It was composed of Christian leaders from across the vast Roman Empire. They met to confront the challenges the church was facing and to hammer out some important doctrinal statements to both guide and guard the church. And the result is what we know as the Nicene Creed, a, a confession of faith that is recognized by all branches of Christianity, and occasionally we even recite it here at the Evangelical Free Church. But I think it's safe to say that not many of us are aware of the suffering that the delegates who were at that council had gone through. There were 318 delegates that were present, and 306 of them had either lost an eye, lost a hand, or had a leg made lame because of the torture they had received for their faith in Christ. They had been abused and beaten and tortured because of their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for the truth, but they dared to love the truth and Christ more than their own lives. For they knew the urgency and necessity of standing for the truth and to proclaim the gospel against the surrounding culture. And their courage under fire serves as an example even for us today. It strengthened the church then. Their example, if we are to consider it, can strengthen us even today. And we can trust the work that they have done. In our passage for today, Jesus said that he sends his apostles out as sheep in the midst of wolves. In their faithful service to the Lord, these disciples will face hardship, opposition, and betrayal. All of the same things that Jesus himself faced. And the results will be that they will be like their teacher and master. The gospel will continue to go forward, and the Lord will be pleased with the efforts of their lives. Now, I think it's safe to say that the subject of persecution is not one that we like to hear about. We would rather hear about the pleasant things of the Lord and, and be at beds of ease in Zion. Yet persecution is promised to be a part and parcel of our ministry to the Lord Jesus Christ. It certainly has been the case since the beginning of the church that Christians have suffered for their faith. And if we have been spared difficulty and persecution in our own country, it is in large measure only because of the mercy of God. So we should not think that somehow we will continue to, to escape persecution. So on the one hand, we should prepare for it and expect it as our culture continues to move in an ever darker direction so that we're ready. If it doesn't happen to us, may God be praised. He's been merciful to us, and we will give him great thanks. But if it does happen, let it be said that we were aware and that we were prepared and that we were warned and that we were ready. And in the midst of it, let us be those who rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at our passage this morning, Jesus is going to give instructions on how to consider persecution. So we're going to read this morning from Matthew 10, verses 16 to 25. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word.
and the truthful and inspired word of God given by God the Holy Spirit for the edification of his people. It says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated all, by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will have not gone through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Let us pray. Father, as we have read your word this morning, we stand under its authority and its truth and invite you to teach us now as your spirit guides us. May we have a deeper love and affection and appreciation for Lord Jesus Christ as a result of this text, as we pray in his holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning to those of you joining us online. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for wrestling with us the change of hour. And studying the Word of God with us, please open your Bibles at home to Matthew chapter 10 and study with us this morning. Our first major point as you follow along in your sermon outline is, it's a bad world out there. It's a bad world out there. Our text begins, behold, I am sending you out as sheep amidst the wolves. We've already seen how the apostles have been sent out on their first missionary journey. And we saw they went out quickly, immediately, taking limited supplies because... Jesus had promised that God the Father would provide for them. They were sent out with a message. They were sent out with the power of Jesus to declare the kingdom of heaven. In each village they entered, they were to proclaim, you must repent or you will perish for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And those who refused would receive a a fate worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Jesus says here that he will send them out as wolves in the midst of, he send them out as sheep in the midst of wolves couple of interesting points here. You recall that in their first missionary journey, they were first sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So they were to go to the lost sheep, but now here they are sent out as sheep. I think it's an interesting play on words here. And the promise here seems to be of a future journey because the grammar has changed from the present tense to the future tense. It seems to be preparing them for ministry that will come later. And just as they were given instructions for how to go out on their initial ministry to the lost sheep of Israel, they're also given directions for their eventual ministry to Gentiles. Well, whether this is applied to the first century apostles or to the saints of Jesus Christ in every age, including our own, we need to recognize that Christians always go out into a world that is evil. We kid ourselves otherwise. The world is simply opposed to the things of God and to his people. The world opposes the messengers of God. 
and it will require the intervention of God for the situation to change. It's already been said that next week we will recognize the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. The fact remains there are many places in the world today that are dangerous for Christians to go to. And yet the great commission of our Lord must be fulfilled. The glories of the Lord have not been announced to all the people groups of the world. And so there is still a need for those like we saw the members of the Council of Nicaea who cared not for their own lives but were willing to lay down their lives for the cause of Christ. See, God's will is not simply that we go where it's easy, where it's beautiful, where it might seem to be more fruitful or pleasant. His will is that the church take the gospel to all the nations of the world, even where the wolves are. But if we go, it's because Jesus has sent us and Jesus has promised to be with us. And we go in his name and in his power, and so we need not be afraid. Fear is the operating control feature of the day in our culture. But we of all people should not operate by fear because we know the victor. And we're in the one who overcomes fear and death and indeed will get the final victory. So this brings us then to our first sub-point under this major point, which is of wisdom and innocence. Of wisdom and innocence. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Christians are called to both be wise and innocent in their ministry on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, he draws a comparison to serpents. One thing about serpents is they know where to hide if necessary. They're crafty. They're creative. They avoid unnecessary obstacles. The idea here is that we, we give careful thought to how we act when dangers appear. But since the church is already commanded to go, we're already commanded to go out and preach and to send others and to give and to, to pray and to be actively involved. We go. And we should go without hesitation or reservation, but not without wisdom. Christians are to act according to the wisdom of the Lord. They're not to instigate problems. They're not to provoke others unnecessarily. The message of the cross will be enough to provoke people. And if the people are provoked by the message of the cross, that should not surprise us. They're also to go out and be innocent as doves, not to be involved in the sinful practices of the world. Doves are known to be peaceful. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. But did you know that doves are also loyal? They often stick with one partner for the whole of their lives. That's how we are to be to the Lord Jesus Christ, a single-minded devotion to him loyal throughout all of our lives. Doves are also known to be fearless. They're often the last in a flock of birds to fly away when human beings approach. They don't skitter off at the first signs of danger. They hang around a little longer to see what's going to happen. So we need to be wise in our ministry and peaceful and kind and gentle in our behavior and our conduct. Christians are to be wise and courageous but not foolish. They're not to flee and hide at the first sign of danger, but neither are they to take unnecessary risks. They're to speak boldly and not self-censor, not silence themselves too quickly out of fear of what others might say. They're to be active and yet vulnerable. The apostles then and Christians now are not sent out to fight. 
but to transform, to proclaim, to serve, to tell the truth. The goal in life is to please the Lord, not necessarily to seek a bed of ease. They're called to be witnesses, not warriors. And if necessary, they're called to be martyrs, not maniacs. They're to pay attention, serve boldly, not cowardly, not running off into safety and silence. They're to live in such a way that the message gets out, but they don't get in the way of that message by how they live. Be marked by integrity and by ethics. And to go out, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I think the Apostle Paul, who certainly knew more than his fair share of suffering, more than his fair share of obstacles, understood the necessity of this verse. Listen to what he said to the church in Rome at the end of the letter he wrote. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. It's the principle for us to continue in this day, that we all might be known as those who are wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So as they go out, they will have a witness to the Jews. The text says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. So as they go out, they can expect to face opposition, persecution, maybe even a violent response to their ministries. They will discover that the gospel message divides. Jesus has already made clear, we saw it in the Sermon on the Mount, that the kingdom of heaven divides people. You are either in the kingdom or you are not. You are on the straight and narrow path or you are not. The message of the kingdom of God is one that proclaims truth. It's a, a clarion call to action. It challenges the status quo. It commands the listener to die to self and to live for Christ. Jesus commands his church to go, not saying that it will be easy or peaceful or without opposition, but to go and stand firm because he will be with his people. And as he sends them out, he says, beware of those who oppose you. He says they will deliver you over. It's interesting, the word here is paradidomai, to betray, to hand over, to move from one side to the other. It's the exact word that was used of Judas Iscariot in his betrayal of Jesus. Jesus says that betrayal will come among those who are closest to us. Believers in Jesus at that time, he said they'll be handed over to the courts, literally the Sanhedrins, literally the governing councils of each local area. And after they've been handed over to the courts, they'll be taken to the synagogues where they will be flogged. Not the same message that we hear from prosperity preachers today. But this is the gospel truth. Deuteronomy 25 gives the instructions on how to do this kind of discipline. You could strike someone up at the 40 times. And the Jews and their practices did not want to violate the 40, so they would go to 39 for fear that they would miscount. And what they would do is they would give 13 lashes across the abdomen and 26 across the back. One would be whipping the prisoner, or the, the guilty person so-called, and another would be counting to make sure they did not go over the 40 times. The Apostle Paul in his ministry endured this kind of punishment five times. So that's part of their witness to the Jews. 
Next comes the witness to the Gentiles. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And again, I think we're looking at future ministry that is going to take place after Jesus has accomplished all that he's going to accomplish. And the disciples will go out in fulfillment of the Great Commission after Jesus has ascended to heaven. But these apostles, these followers, these believers will experience what Jesus himself experienced. He himself, who was dragged before the Sanhedrin, before the high priests, before the political leaders of Pilate and Herod. This was the experience of the early church in the book of Acts, in the life of the apostle Paul, where they also were dragged before various leaders because of their testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact remains that the history of the church has been the history of a persecuted church from region to region, from time to time. But the Lord is at work. Even in the midst of all this difficulty of being dragged before this tribunal and that one, Jesus said that it will happen for my sake. It's good for us to be reminded, friends, that our lives are about the Lord. Whether for things that appear to us to be good or times that are bad, whether in times of ease or times of difficulty, he is the Lord. He has purchased us. He owns us. He's preparing the place for us. He will return to collect us one day. And he has adopted us. And as his children, he can move us around as he sees fit for his will, for his purposes, so that we will go out and witness without fear. What was the purpose of them being dragged before these tribunals, before these political leaders, so that they would witness without fear, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles? They'll be persecuted, maybe prosecuted, penalized, punished, so that they might declare the glories of the kingdom of heaven. We saw that this missionary mandate began with the Jewish apostles who would preach the gospel first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But it wouldn't remain there. It would then go on to the Gentiles and expand. And if that, oppor that, uh, that includes opportunities to suffer as we go out and preach and proclaim and live. Then while we are facing that persecution, we need to speak. We need to serve. We need to love. We need to proclaim there is a God who rules and reigns. One of my colleagues during our time in, in the country of Jordan was a, was a Palestinian Christian. And he was often brought before the secret police. Obviously, he lived in a very Muslim country. He was a proclaimer. He was an evangelist. And he was one of the bravest believers I've ever met. He would not back down. They would bring him into the offices of the secret police and they would interrogate him and they would threaten him and they would call him names and he would continue to preach the gospel and hand out New Testaments and hand out books. And when they were together as a group, they would interrogate him and threaten him and yell at him and curse him. But whenever he had a chance to meet with him one-on-one, -on -one, he would hear things like, hey, I've been reading that book you gave me. It's really helping. <laughs> Persecution will provide opportunities to proclaim the truth and to speak boldly on behalf of Christ. The word here to bear witness in the Greek is martyrion, from where we get the word martyr. Early on in the church, 
To bear witness often literally meant to be a martyr, to give your life for the cause of Christ. And it happens in many places today. But I think for most of us, this bearing witness will be more in a metaphorical sense where we are called to die to ourselves that we might live for Christ. And as we die to ourselves, we can proclaim a living Christ to a world that desperately needs to hear about him. And that we might call people then to repent and believe. And so if we understand what Jesus is saying here, then persecution is an expected part of the Christian life. Persecution is mentioned in almost every book of the New Testament. One book, 1 Peter, was written almost entirely for this purpose. How to tell Christians to endure under great persecution from the Roman Empire. And the Apostle Paul, who certainly knew difficulty, said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They hated Jesus. They persecuted him and his followers. It's been the history of the church that that's been the case. The 20th century had more Christian martyrs than the previous 19 centuries combined. And the 21st century is on pace to pass that mark. Death, my friends, is not the worst thing for the Christian. Denial of Jesus is. And we'll see that in the passage that we will consider next week. Jesus has conquered the power of death and the fear of death. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So here's a promise that I want to bring in. It's not in my notes. But I'm stealing it right from another pastor's message, John Piper. The believer will never see death. That's our hope. When we draw our last breath, we go right into the presence of the Lord. We will not see death. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to the Christian. So don't deny Jesus. As we've said, next Sunday we will celebrate, as it were, more lamenting and praying for the persecuted church around the world. Jesus goes on and says, and when they deliver you. Notice he didn't say if, he said when. It's like when he said, and when you pray with the expectation you will pray. And when you fast with the expectation that you will fast. And when they deliver you over with the expectation that not everyone is going to be happy with believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour Notice the word, do not be anxious. Where has Jesus told us not to be anxious? In Matthew 6, he said, do not be anxious about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. For your father knows that you need these things. Here he says, don't be anxious. If you're my representative, if you're my servant, if you're to give testimony, don't be anxious. And in Acts chapter 4, we have a great example of Peter and John who were arrested and brought before the tribunal and threatened, do not speak in this man's name. And they could not keep silent because they knew that Jesus would keep his promise and give them the words to say in the time they needed. And in that case, Peter boldly preached the gospel saying, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, but Jesus Christ the Lord. If you are arrested, harassed, accosted, threatened because you belong to the Lord, 
then the Lord will give you what you need to say. So you don't need to worry. You don't need to cower. You don't need to be silent. Because you will get what you need in that moment of need. I referred earlier to 1 Peter. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. He said, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So be ready if you can. We should be people who study and we pray and we learn and we grow and we can give an answer and we're ready. But even if we are not ready, if something happens, sudden change in government, a sudden change in the circumstances, and we're swept up, what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. What a great promise we have that our God goes with us. He doesn't abandon us. He preserves us and keeps us all the way to the end. Now, this is not a promise of some type of spiritual gift, speaking in tongues or something like that. It's a promise of boldness and courage to tell the truth in the face of great challenge. It'll be these disciples who are using their lips and their tongues and their voices to be speaking, but it'll be given the words speaking by the God, the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. The Father and the Son and the Spirit always work in perfect harmony with one another. And if we go out as representatives of Christ and that God has allowed us to go into a time of persecution, we can trust God, the Holy Spirit, to lead us in those moments. Because that's what Jesus promised would happen when he sent the Holy Spirit. He said, when I go away, I will send the Spirit. And the Spirit will remind you of my words and empower you and guide you and teach you. So, when I would prepare students, when I was still teaching at the seminary and preparing them how to teach and how to lead and how to prepare lessons, I would say this verse is to be used as a promise for those who are facing persecution. It is not to be used by lazy pastors who do not want to prepare, but who want to stand in the pulpit on Sunday and say, don't worry about what you're going to say, for it will be given you by the Spirit of God. That is a misuse of the verse. Because we're commanded to study, we're commanded to grow, we're commanded to learn, we're commanded to memorize, we're commanded to meditate. It's a bad world out there, our first major point. Secondly, the gospel brings division. Jesus promises that divisions and opposition will come, even from fellow countrymen, even from family members. He reflects words that are given in Micah 7, where opposition to God's people will come even from those closest to them. And so we see there will be hatred from within and without. Jesus tells us that brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and, the, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. It's painful. Opposition could come from within the very family itself, brother turning on brother, parent turning on child. But it just reminds us then that the gospel divides sometimes right down the middle of families. And that is why Jesus is to be our top priority, the focus of our time and talent and treasure. The times could come when things are of such duress and distress that one's own family could betray a Christian because it just gets too dangerous or too hot. 
but Jesus himself knew betrayal. Betrayal from those closest to him. And so he empathizes with his children. He says, I know what the pain of betrayal feels like. Trust me. Let me lead you through this time. Which is a reminder then that our eternal family is the redeemed of God. It's the church of God. Those saints that God has purchased that will hold forever and with whom we will gather around the throne forever and ever and ever. And we don't like contemplating the reality or the possibility of divisions within families, but because Jesus has said it will happen, we have to wrestle with it. We have to reckon with it, prepare for it. And this is not anything new. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy 13, Moses said that even if someone within your own family who shares the pillow with you says, hey, let's follow another God, you are to discipline them and not follow them. Straight is the path and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. And so after you have this terrible division within the family itself, Jesus goes on and says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Think of what that means. You know, in the Bible, this expression, in the name of, means all that a person is and stands for. So because of Jesus, we will be hated. Because of his righteousness, we will be hated. Because we preach the truth, we will be hated. Those that are trapped in their sins do not like to be reminded that they're trapped in their sins. Those that are trapped in addictions and bad behavior and, and wrong attitudes don't like to be confronted about those things. And we're starting to experience it a little more even in our own culture where simply because we are Christians, the word hater is thrown at us or bigot or worse. So I need to be careful. Jesus says here that they will be hated for his name's sake. So let's just make sure then if we are hated, it is because we are faithful to Jesus and his word and not because of our sinful foolishness. And there's a difference between the two. So after we have hatred from within and without, we see endurance and salvation. Yes, this is a tough message because it comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we can't avoid it. So we just move through it. And Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who is firm in Christ, walking in Christ, can overcome the challenges and difficulties, and he will be saved. But saved from what? Well, it can't mean saved from trials and tribulations. That's exactly what's promised here. It can't be saved from persecution or even death. That's what's promised here. Christians have always known suffering and persecution. No, we need to dig down deeper and understand that this means salvation from eternal condemnation. That those who are saved will persevere in the faith. And they will show that they're in the faith because they will persevere. And if the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the words to say, which we're promised here, he is the one that will also work in and through us so that we remain faithful to the end and hold steadfast in our faith. But that does not mean that there's not effort and intentionality and prayer and energy on our part. We need to keep our eyes on the prize. We need to keep our eyes on the destination. We need to keep our eyes on where we're going. We need to keep our eyes on what is waiting for us. And so we keep pushing forward. 
During a Monday night football game many years ago involving the Chicago Bears, one of the announcers observed that Walter Payton, who at that time was the best running back in football, had just gone over the mark where he had rushed for a total of nine miles in his, political, uh, his professional career. I don't know how many yards that is, but it's a lot. Nine by 1760, so whatever it is, you know, 10,000 yards or more. He'd run for over nine miles in his career, and the announcer said, yeah, and that's with somebody knocking him down every 4.6 yards. The key to success, my friends, is not to fall down and stay there at the first obstacle, or the second one, or the third one, or the millionth one, but to keep persevering, to keep standing firm, to keep moving forward because God is with us. He's strengthening us. He's empowering us. And he's moving us forward because the one who perseveres and endures to the end is the one who will be in the presence of God forever. So keep on keeping on, my friends. It's worth it. Stand firm. Persevere. And finish the job. When they prosecute you in one town, flee to the next one. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So we might ask ourselves the question, if time gets difficult, should I stay or should I go? In fact, it depends, as Jesus is making clear here. He's, he told us we're to exercise wisdom like a serpent and bravery like a dove. So when you go and face persecution and there are those who will not listen, if you can get away and go to the next town, then avail yourself of that possibility. Jesus himself at times withdrew from crowds so that he could continue on his ministry. He knew that there was a greater goal in mind than just staying and fighting it out in every last battle that he had. The apostles did the same. Sometimes they availed themselves of their rights as Roman citizens. Other times they did not. It was all about the gospel of the kingdom of God. They're ready to face the ultimate challenge, but at times they could get away and continue on. But what they didn't do was they didn't continue to cast their pearls before swine, and they didn't cower away from any opposition. Sometimes a retreat is strategic so that you can go and preach again. But sometimes retreat is cowardice. So we need the wisdom of God to know which is which and how to act and yes, we need to pray because we don't have the perfect wisdom of God. And so we need his wisdom to guide us and to help us in every circumstance. And then we get to what is perhaps the most perplexing verse in all of the gospel of Matthew. You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There's a strange promise here. And the commentators are all over the place in 20 years of church history has not agreed what the final answer is. Was this for the 12 apostles only? Was it for the early church? Was it only for those in the first century? Was it for uh, later on in church history? Options have been given. People have debated. There's different points of view. Rather than go and give you the list of, of possible options, I'm just going to say that we're going to see this expression, the coming of the Son of Man, many more times in the Gospel of Matthew, and so we will look at it more in depth as we do. But you may want to look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 12 to 14, where this expression comes from, and that will help, help us as we move forward. But for time's sake, I won't give the list that I have here this morning of possible options. And good 
godly men have been on each side of these issues. And so we need to be careful as we interact with one another what the meaning of the coming of the Son of Man means. But what is clear from this context is that there is an urgency in preaching the gospel. You're going to be persecuted. If you need to, flee. But if you have to, suffer. For in that time you'll be given the words to say. But keep on going. There's an urgency to the message. And think about what it is that we preach. We preach that there is a kingdom. And there is a king who will be the judge. Who also offers salvation. Who is returning one day in glory and great power. And will set all things right. That's a pretty good message. And you understand the warning that we need to give to those around us. The gospel brings division. Thirdly, walking in Jesus' steps. As we contemplate the possibility of persecution and as we contemplate the need to remain faithful, we can learn from church history as brothers and sisters before us have struggled with how to live these things out in their different countries, their different settings. But it's often the case that the more we live for Christ, the more we walk in the ways of Christ, the more we proclaim the glories of Christ, the more opposition we will face for his sake from a world that hates the gospel and hates those who bring the gospel. So we need to be reminded if they did it to Jesus. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant his master. Think about that. A disciple is not above his teacher. Who's the teacher here? Jesus. What did they do to him? They mocked him. They whipped him. They spit in his face. They beat him. They hung him on a cross. They gambled for his clothes. A disciple is not above his teacher. A servant is not above his master. In the Gospel of John, when, when Jesus was teaching, he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. You know, there's a temptation where we might say, you know, God just, he just loves us too much. He'll never allow us to suffer or be prosecuted or persecuted. Is that what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying it just might be because God loves us that he will send us through persecution so that we might show our love for him, so that we might have opportunities to proclaim him, so that we might have a chance to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We're not promised exemption from trials. We're promised his presence in the midst of trials. And so we need not shy away because Jesus is with us. And he will walk with us all the way through. Think about this. The father loved Jesus more than he loved anyone else. Did he spare him? from suffering and death. So Jesus says a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant his master. 
So if we have the privilege of suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus, we can confess whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So here's the question that I have to ask myself, that I wrestled with this week. If the Lord were to get more glory from my trials or sufferings or death or persecution or disease or pain, would I accept that from the hand of God? Or would I insist that I get my way? Father, may your will be done and not mine. So be like Jesus. It is enough for the disciples to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. Think of that. That's a genius understatement. It is enough to be like Jesus. In words and actions and wisdom and character and life, it is enough. Yeah, it is enough because it's everything for us to become like Jesus. Are we willing to do what it takes that we'll become more like Jesus? to bend the knee under the hand of God as he moves us through the harvest fields of this world and shapes and molds us so that we will be like Jesus? Are we willing to let him do what he wants to do so that he gets maximum glory from our lives? Now, Jesus knew that he came to glorify the Father, to fulfill the plan of the Father, to redeem a people for himself, to to build the church, and he worked harder than anyone in his messianic ministry. And the the apostles follow that example. Paul says, I worked harder than any of the other ones. Peter and James and John and the others, they worked hard. They knew the urgency of people hearing about Christ. They knew that people had to be confronted with the truth. And Jesus said, there's not enough workers, pray, so that workers will go out. So the question is, are we part of the solution? Do the people around us know that we're Christians? Do they know what we really believe? Do they know the truth of the cross? Remember when I was in college, somebody asked me the question, if one day it became illegal to be a Christian in America, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I said, Lord, have mercy and work in my heart. Because there's one thing I don't want to be, is I don't want to be involved in the secret service where it's so secret that nobody even knows I'm a Christian. But I want people to know that God has been at work in my life. And I pray that that's what you want as well. That you will be like the teacher. You will be like the master as he works in your life and walks with you through this world. And lastly, a terrible slander. If they've called the master of the house, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? There's definitely a play on words here. Beelzebul was the god of the high places and Canaanite religions. With time, he was given the name as the highest demon. And so it was another name for Satan. And so the Jews, whenever they wanted to really criticize someone, would say it's Baal-Zebul, Baal, God, Zebul, high places, the god of the high places. But then as a show of mockery, they would often change the name to Baal-Zebul. The word Zebul is dung. And so they would refer to him as Lord of the Flies, particularly Lord of the Flies of the Dung Heap. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? It is by the Lord of the Dung that they have committed these miracles. He has committed these miracles. They're slandering the Lord Jesus Christ. They have no idea what power they're dealing with. But but they're following 
in uh, uh, John chapter 8, Jesus said, you're of your father the devil who's been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And what are they doing? They're slandering. The devil's been slandering from the beginning, from the garden. Did God really say? And now here where they're calling Jesus, doing his works by the power of the devil. We hear some slander against Christians today. Kind of sounds similar to some of these statements. But don't be surprised. It means we're on the right path. It means we're following the path of righteousness. There will be persecution. But we follow the one who is the man of sorrows, who bore our sorrows so that we might have the joy of the Lord. In the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Valens threatened Eusebius, who was the first church historian. He said, renounce Christ or I will confiscate all of your goods. I will torture you. I will banish you. I will even kill you. And Eusebius replied, he, need not, he needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose. He need not fear banishment to whom heaven is his country. He need not fear torments when his body can be destroyed with one blow. And he need not fear death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. Death can't hold us. It just puts us into the presence of God. And so if we're faithful in the Lord, persecution will come. But what will our reaction be? Now next week, Jesus will warn his his, his listeners upon presuming upon his grace and warning them against denying Jesus in the face of those trials. And so we'll get ready for that message for next week. But until then, what are some lessons we can take away? Because Jesus is our wisdom. 1 Corinthians 130, he is our wisdom. We ask him to make us wise as we engage with those who oppose us. Because we are to be innocent as doves, we depend on Christ to keep us pure and bold in our gospel witness. We want to fulfill his command to be wise and to be innocent. And so we say, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. Thirdly, because Jesus said persecution will come, we will stand firm in him if it happens. He stood firmly for us, and he will cause us to stand firmly in him. And knowing that even those close to us might betray us. We remember that our true eternal family is the redeemed of God. The saints of God with whom we will spend eternity. And knowing that it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, we will pray, obey, work, and serve to become more like Jesus as he empowers us. My friends, even if it gets difficult, it will be worth it. Because on the other side, Jesus will be receiving us and rewarding us and will be in his presence forever. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you remind us of our great need of you. And you turn our hearts so that it is all about you. And you promise us that you will be with us. And I thank you, Father, that the promises that we have of being in your presence forever before your throne and worshiping you truly and fully will come to pass one day. 
but you've also said that between that day and today, there will be challenges in this world that continues to oppose you. But Father, we thank you that Jesus will get the victory one day, completely, fully, and eternally. And so help us to stand firm in that promise and to love Jesus more than anything else in our lives so that he is exalted and so we will joyfully enter his presence one day. To that end, we pray, Father. Use us this week for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.